These 12, we were introduced to them last week, Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when you, they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child. A child will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But he endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from my father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of the, these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, 
he shall by no means lose his reward. Well, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your commission. And although this is an early one in the historical narrative, it's nonetheless true and has been true since it was given. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand it. Lord, and that by it, you wouldn't just instruct us, but that you would encourage us to preach, to proclaim the gospel and not fear those that could injure us, whether socially or psychologically, physically, Lord, but to be loyal to you. So just help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Okay. So last week, the disciples, of course, now the apostles, they were introduced to us. And apparently enough time has gone by that it's time to give a few more instructions and then send them out and to see uh, how well they'll do with the training that they've received. And so it's kind of a, a, a test run. And, uh, but what is said here, of course, covers this initial mission. And as you saw the context there, it covers the, the mission, all missions in the future. And not just the treatment of the apostles, but it will be the treatment of uh, God's people throughout the ages. So they're being, it's like a preliminary test. So the rest of our chapter is a talk. It's a, a commission or a directive. Uh, it's meant to prepare. And uh, I think if anything requires preparation, it's the task of proclaiming the gospel. Uh, we don't see many people proclaiming the gospel as openly, typically, as the apostles did. And uh, I think there are many reasons for that. Um, but I think that I, I often hear people say, well, that, you know, the church, the faith, Christ is a crutch, because they're, they're manly men. Well, if you're such a manly man, why don't you go risk everything and go on a street corner and preach the gospel? Let's see what a stud you are. And uh, I just can't get them to do that. And so they're not as tough as they think they are. But to go out and proclaim a message, to be um, convincing, uh, to be assertive, to be bold, uh, it's something. And um, I love seeing it. I like when I go to Seattle and there's a guy on the, the, uh, the street by Pike's Place and he's got a, um, a, a, a big uh, piece of paper on a, I don't know what those things are called, an A-frame thingamabob. Uh, and he's writing, he's drawing illustrations, he's preaching to the people. And, uh, you know, some people are ridiculous. Uh, they're obnoxious and rude and, and all of that. But some of them, I've, I've saw some guys that are very winsome, articulate, and uh, they have a way of drawing a crowd. And I think it's great. And then it's those guys that um, aren't deserving of the treatment that they get. Now, the other guys, if they get something thrown at them, I go, well, you kind of deserve that. Uh, but these guys, they're being very gracious, kind, uh, winsome, and all of that. And I like it. I like it. I just stand there and pray for them and, and respect uh, their courage and all of that. So, But anyway, Jesus' talk here is divided into five sections. Uh, he begins with, uh, we might say, prescriptions for proclamation. Uh, then he goes into precautions uh, regarding proclamation, which I think is very important. Uh, people need to know what they're getting into. And... Uh, they can count the cost. Then there's persevering in proclamation because of the, the uh, precautions. Uh, when it actually happens, as Jesus said, um, he encourages us to persevere in it. And then, as we know, the gospel has a way of polarizing things. It's not all 
hunky-dory and, and all of that, but Jesus said, I'm, I'm bringing a sword. And his goal isn't to divide people. He just knows that the gospel, the truth, and all of that has a way of doing that. So there's polarization, there's persecution, and then at the end, of course, there's prizes awarded through proclamation, both to the, the messenger and the one that receives the message. Isn't that true? I hope we're all beneficiaries of the gospel, right? Yeah. So the various prescriptions regarding this proclamation of the kingdom begins in verse 5, continues through verse 15. So let's, let's get started here. So Jesus says, these, or the text says, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded, he's commissioning them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the commission actually begins with a prohibition. Do not, do not, at least initially, do not go to the Gentiles. That is a non-Jew. And do not go to the Samaritans. That's a half-Jew. Uh, do you think this could be more ethnically specific? Don't do this. I just want you to do this. The initial proclamation of the kingdom of God must first go to the house of Israel. Uh, later, Jesus will refer to the Israelites as the sons of the kingdom. But, of course, because of unbelief, that kingdom can be taken from them. Matthew 8, verse 12. Now, the real the reason that the, the proclamation is to first go to Israel is because of what was stated in the Old Testament prophets. This whole thing was promised to Israel. It's to be introduced to them first of all, okay? Uh, at least initially. And uh, if you're familiar with uh, Paul's um, proclamation of the gospel in the book of Acts, and he talks about it in the book of Romans and elsewhere, it's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, not only in order, but in priority, okay? Now, it doesn't mean that he would step over a Gentile to preach to a Jew, okay? Because we find cases like that in the book of Acts where Gentiles were between him and the Jews, and so he preached the gospel to them. But the proclamation of it was first to the lost house of Israel, the Jews, okay? From the Old Testament, as it promised. And of course, uh, as I briefly mentioned, there are conditions by which not just the, the Jews, but anybody can enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, what's that condition? It's all about Christ, isn't it? Uh, it happens to be about the king. You, you're not entering the king's kingdom unless you recognize the king, unless you're, through faith, sworn allegiance to the king himself. So that's the condition. So the apostles are being sent out to really see who among the Jews would believe in Christ to secure, as it were, their citizenship in this particular kingdom. I think that's all we're doing. Amen? When we preach the gospel, we're just going out and seeing. And uh, I always love what Charles Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon was the great Baptist preacher from England in the 1800s. Uh, he said, if I knew who the elect were, uh, he says, I would just preach to them and get this over with. And he says, it would be nice if it was under their, their coattails. Because he said, I'd go about England lifting up coattails looking for who the elect are. And boy, that would be an awkward encounter for preaching the gospel. But we don't know who will be saved. We don't know who will believe. And so we go out and we preach the gospel and uh, it's whosoever will believe, they will be saved. And uh, so I don't bear this weight of responsibility as if I'm responsible for bringing people to Christ. Uh, my job is to sow the seed of the gospel and through the work of the Holy Spirit, they must respond. 
And so I'm just gonna go out and see who it is that wants to be a citizen of this kingdom and swear their allegiance to Christ. So initially, anyway, it goes to the ethnic Jew. Verse seven, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, how many of you guys are comfortable saying it's actually at hand? It's a weird saying. It's a weird saying. At hand means that it's near, that it's near. Go preach that the reality of the kingdom is close at hand. It's it's, it's even upon you, as Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28, that is the kingdom is imminent. And so the question is, how so? Well, it's actually not an easy thing to, to define, I don't think. Uh, it's challenging uh, to sort it out. Uh, depending on your, you know, your theological bent, if you have one, the phrase has definitive meaning to you. But what does it mean? Now, prior to now, in our the historical narrative, it's been said twice that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Once by John the Baptist, uh, the, the second time by Jesus, and, uh, and, and now. But later, in John 18.36, Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. So how can the kingdom be both imminent, but not of this world? At hand, but not present. Or close, but distant. Here, but not here. Jesus had a way of doing that to us. He does it at the end of the chapter. You know, if you lose your life, you'll find it. We love dichotomies. They're not contradictions. They're just dichotomies. But to complicate things more, earlier as Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he instructed them to pray that God's kingdom and will would be realized here on earth in the same way that it's a reality in heaven. So obviously the kingdom is not here. If it were, Jesus would have not He would not have asked for it to come here. He wants it here, but it's not here, at least not yet. It's not of this world, as Jesus told Pilate, but he did pray that it would be on earth. How can that be if it's it's not of this world, but you want it on the earth? Perhaps the terms world and earth mean two different things. There's more. In Matthew 13, 41, Jesus speaking of the future says that his angels will gather out of his kingdom, all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Now, the context refers to things on earth, and there the kingdom appears to be on earth. In this context, the kingdom cannot be in heaven because people are there practicing lawlessness and evil. Well, that's a thing. To say that Matthew 13 is a reference to the kingdom being in heaven would be a correction of Jesus' interpretation of the parable about the kingdom because Matthew 13, 37 through 43 is Jesus' literal interpretation of an illustration. You get it? If we say that the kingdom is in heaven at that time, it would be a non-literal interpretation of Jesus' literal interpretation of the parable. It would be an interpretation of an interpretation with an opposite conclusion. Have I confused you yet? The kingdom messes with me all the time. Okay? All the time. Dichotomies. Not a contradiction. So because of this, there's much confusion about the location, timing, nature of the kingdom. So what is the kingdom of heaven? How can it be both imminent and distant? Where is it? Or where will it be located? And I think more importantly to us, when will it be a reality for us? Now, these are important questions because the kingdom is always talked about, especially in the gospels. It kind of has a way of fading out a little bit later but it's discussed a lot. It has something, a lot of to do with us, but that's not really the scope of our discussion this morning. 
so we're going to have to wait on it. I just wanted to get it out there. If you've been with us on Thursday night, um, we're addressing the same issue from Isaiah. Uh, before we get through Matthew, we're going to have to spend some time sorting all of this out, the things concerning the kingdom. Tucker Votberg has been harassing me about it since we started Matthew, so I don't want to let him down. I just, I just want to keep him on the edge for a while. So the discussion of the kingdom is imminent, but it's distant. Okay, we'll get there. Let's get back to our text. Uh, in, 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 in the meantime, not right now, be studying the kingdom, how it's talked about, the nature of it, timing, location, all of that, and then you'll be better prepared uh, when we come back to the discussion. So back to our text. The apostles were to preach the kingdom, that it was at hand. Now, the question is, what evidence could they provide to authenticate the message as it was promised by the prophets? Here it is. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Signs and wonders. They're not for the purpose of making the apostles look cool. It's not so they could show off. Amen? The signs and the wonders, as we talked about last week, they are, they are there in order to authenticate the message of the kingdom. People should listen to the message because authority has come down from heaven, has been given to men in order that they might do these things. And so people should listen. People should listen. And then the verse ends with, freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. In other words, do not charge for miracles. Do not profit from them. There should be no price tag on what I'm sending you out to do. This isn't a form of quid pro quo. Of course, now uh, in today, we have TV evangelists, celebrity pastors. They have private jets. They have tailored clothes. They, have, they live lavishly. Um, but let me say very clearly, those who are sent out by Christ do not profit. Okay? They do not profit like that. And they will answer for it. Some examples, uh, you know the story of Elisha. He refused payment from Naaman. You remember the story? Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army. And he had heard, who, he was a leper, he had heard from his servant girl who was taken captive from, from Israel that there was a prophet in Israel that could heal him of his leprosy. And so he thought, well, then I'm going down to Israel because leprosy is miserable. So he goes down and there's this drawn out story of how it all happens. And he offers gifts, fairly lavish gifts to Elisha. And Elisha says, nope, we don't do that. Not for sale. But after Naaman departed, Elisha's servant Gehazi chases him down, feeds him a lie, and then receives payment. And then, of course, he suffered greatly for that because God took the leprosy of Naaman and gave it to Gehazi. And there's this awkward encounter between Elisha and Gehazi, okay? So the prophet Elisha knew better than to profit from miracles, and so did his servant. And that's why there's this, this uh, lie. Peter knew better. You know the story is him and John are uh, coming through the gate beautiful, the beautiful gate on the way to the temple for the hour of prayer. They're met by a cripple, and he gets their attention, asking for alms and asking for mercy. And, and uh, Peter says, silver and gold I do not have. But what I, have to, what I have, I give to you, rise up and walk. Well, Peter, before now, had been performing miracle after miracle after miracle. Why did he not have money to give to the cripple? Because he wasn't taking money, okay? He wasn't taking it. He wasn't profiting, just as Jesus told him 
not to. When Simon, the sorcerer, wanted to purchase this authority, you know, there's this false conversion of his story, and then he saw that through the laying on of hands that people were being healed, they were speaking in foreign languages they never spoke before, all this stuff was going on, and so he wanted to pay Peter, the apostle, for this, this authority, so that he could do that, and Peter said, may you perish with your money. Because Peter discerned that what Simon wanted to do was to use that so that he could charge for it, so that he could get wealthier than he was. So those who are getting rich by charging for ministry are practicing simony. They're following in his footsteps. And Peter would say, you can die with your money because Jesus condemned the practice. Freely you have received, so freely give. Paul the apostle, who had the right to receive compensation for the ministry, was very careful depending on the city he was in, especially Corinth because of their immaturity. He worked by vocation. He's like, I know these people, the accusations would just fly. And so he says, I'm not going to take, not going to receive food, compensate, nothing. I'm going to work with my hands and I'm going to support my companions that are with me. It's very interesting. Just being careful about this whole issue. The gospel is not to be peddled like a product on the market, propagated for profit. Compensation, yes. Uh, Scriptures say honorarium, yes, but not for profit. There should be no charge. And so Jesus says, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. So Jesus said, your payment is going to be what? On this particular mission? Food. Yeah, I think this is great. You're not going to profit from your services. They could bring along any cash they might have had on them, which would have been very, very little, but they were not to acquire any along the way for ministry. Also, they were essentially allowed to take only the clothes that were on them and the staff that was in their hands. They couldn't, double, they couldn't pack their bags. They couldn't do the normal preparations for what they were going to do. The apostles were initially to go out into the cities of Israel without provisions. They had to do this mission, trusting God that he would provide for their needs through other people. That is through good old Jewish hospitality, okay? Hospitality. Jesus establishes the fact that a worker is worthy of the food he gets. Later, it'll be said that a worker is worthy of his wage. That's a worker should be compensated for the amount and quality of the work that he provides. Uh, I like Jesus's philosophy. It's probably fairly controversial, but he believed that minimum wage should be zero dollars. <laughs> the wage should be based upon an agreement made between the employer and the employer, if you don't like the pay, then what? Go get a different job. And if enough people don't like the pay, it'll punish the employer, and maybe the pay will go up. I don't know. Uh, it's a little bit of controversy in our nation right now. So, but anyway, all of this is especially true in the ministry. Uh, it's, it's, it's ministry, by the way, uh, which means service. Uh, God instructs churches to compensate their ministers, but he doesn't say that they should make them wealthy. They should not be living above the people. They shouldn't be elevated to stardom, okay? They should be people of decent, humble means. Jesus says you were not charged to receive the gospel, so you should not profit from it. Amen? And you know how we strong-arm people around here to give. You're not laughing. I've never strong-armed anybody. The only time we ask for money is when it's for somebody else, and uh, we kind of like doing that. So, all right. Jesus says, now whatever city or town you enter 
inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So this is an interesting kind of gig, isn't it? Could you imagine trying to pull this off in Centralia? Hey, can I stay in your place? Who are you? Who are you? Yeah, so they were to find a person who would receive them and in that city, they were to stay in that home until their time there was done. And a household, of course, that would be worthy is the one that received the message and the messengers. And the unworthy household would be the one that was hostile toward the message and the messengers. It's very interesting. Uh, probably something that could be better pulled off in the Middle East. Maybe in the South. Roger, uh, Pastor Roger has a great story about this in Bend, Oregon, when he was with a missionary organization. And some elderly people actually, and it was for this purpose, they were going out like the apostles uh, and they met this couple and they stayed in their house the whole time that they were out. And the other people on the team were like sleeping in the bushes. And these people gave him their car. And I don't know, I thought Roger probably should have felt a little guilty about it. So it could happen. Trusting the Lord. He says, and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. If they reject the message, if they reject the messengers, Jesus says, beat the dust off your feet. Not on them, just beat it off, okay? Beat the dust off. It essentially, or rather does not mean, you know, like, hey, it's just, you know, water off a a duck's back. You know, don't let the offense get to you. Just dust your feet off. That's, That's not what this is about culturally. It essentially means to distance yourself from all affiliation to those people. Leave even the dust on your feet that is their dust with them so you're not condemned with them. It's a very serious issue. Greek scholar A.T. Robertson has this note. He says, the Jews had violent prejudices against the smallest particles of Gentile dust, not as a purveyor of disease of which they did not know, but because it was regarded as the putrescence of death. If the apostles were mistreated by a host or hostess, they were to be treated as if they were Gentiles. Remember, they're going to Jews. And if they reject the message of God, they're to be treated as Gentiles. See, the apostles were not permitted to revile their host or their hostess. They were to just depart and they were to leave it to God to sort out. Just leave it to him. When Paul was opposed in the synagogue in Corinth, uh, and and what happened during this time, he's preaching the gospel. He's he's proving to them from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. And instead of receiving, they became hostile and they even blasphemed Christ. So Paul, it says that he shook his garments off And he said, your blood be upon your heads. I am clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles, Acts 18, 6. It was very, to the Jew, it was very insulting that he would shake his garments off. He says, I'm leaving all of this with you because it's about to be condemned. Your blood be upon your head. And then he basically says, you are less worthy than the Gentiles. (gasps) Yeah, unworthy. But what does this leave people to when they reject and revile the gospel of Christ? Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That's a pretty strong saying when we consider the history, all that we know about Sodom and Gomorrah. But it has everything to do with the knowledge that one has received. Amen. We're accountable for what we know. And so there's a huge difference here. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah 
We know they were wicked on many levels, especially with regard to you know, sexual perversion and the prophets say hospitality. Not being inhospitable in that part of the world was, was evil. It was a big deal. I mean, King David was going to kill a man because he wasn't hospitable. So it was a great offense. Okay? But Sodom and Gomorrah did not have the light of the gospel to accept or reject Whereas the cities in Israel who had the Old Testament scriptures to verify the truth of the gospel, the identity of Christ, and of course with the addition of signs and wonders authenticating it, they would be held to a higher standard than Sodom and Gomorrah because Israel possessed so much knowledge. God is constantly reaching out to them, reaching out to them. And Jesus will heap further condemnation on them because he says, I sent you the prophets one after another and you killed them. You tortured some of them. You murdered them. So the people of Israel had no real excuse for ignorance when it came to the gospel. Jesus will later say that if he had performed the signs and wonders in Sodom, that he performed in Capernaum, he says, Sodom would have repented long ago. Repented. So man is responsible for acting upon the knowledge that he has. So here we have the the preliminary prescriptions for this commission of proclamation, but they do not come without precautions. That's verse 16 through 25. Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Imagine being there and hearing that you would be like a sheep among wolves. Fishing probably became a little more appetizing than being a fisher of men. I mean, the word picture is terrifying. A sheep in a a pack of wolves has no chance, right? Has no chance. And historically, Christians have been easy prey wherever the government especially is hostile toward the faith. They've estimated that since the first century, 100,000 Christians have been martyred every year for the faith. Every year for the last 2,000 years. That's the estimation. And often, most often, without any kind of resistance. Over 4,000 Christians have been murdered in just pure cold blood in Nigeria this year. Do you guys keep up with Nigeria? The issue in Nigeria is a sad affair. Communities attacked by uh, Islamic extremists and um, they raid the cities, they slaughter the farmers, they slaughter the women. Oftentimes they wait until Sundays when the whole community is in the building. They surround the building, they burn it. So this is going on. Uh, in fact, sadly, the, the government watch list of persecuted people, Nigeria did not make it simply because they're Christians. It's a big deal, yeah. It's, it's a sign of the time that the government like ours would not recognize Nigeria as a persecuted, uh, a place with persecuted people. It's very sad, very sad. And uh, showing no resistance to these, these people. Now, there have been uh, pockets, we might say, of resistance here and there throughout history, but they are rare, and I know of none that have succeeded. The greatest Resistance to government persecution of the church was among the Scottish Covenanters in the 1800s. The Covenanters lost, and those who were not in prison or executed, they they fled and hid themselves. Truly, the church has been sheep among wolves. Uh, Because of this, Jesus says we're to be wise as a serpent. Uh, Now, of course, this all requires interpretation. Wise as serpents, uh, gentle as doves. Um, So when I observe serpents, uh, I see a critter who tries to move about unnoticed, at least by their predators. Amen? Some of you are like, I just stay as far from them as possible. 
on our trip around the U.S., Malia found the first scorpion and the first copperhead. So she likes critters. I'm glad about that. I wasn't supposed to mention her from the pulpit without asking permission again. Where is she? I apologize. I didn't ask. So, yeah. So what does this mean for us? I think that presumptuously availing oneself to unprovoked danger is not wise. And I think that it can actually hinder the spread of the gospel. You know, our missionaries that are in Muslim-majority countries do not go out and preach on street corners, okay? And it's not because they're afraid to do so. I know these missionaries. But because it's just foolish, it can hinder the gospel and endanger those who are wise with the gospel, okay? It can, it can hurt the work that's being done. Jesus also says that we're to be as gentle as doves. It seems to me that when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel, we're not to be forceful, uh, we're not to be, uh, we are to be assertive, persuasive, and bold, but I don't think we're to be obnoxious, right? We're to be winsome, uh, not forceful. Uh, some interpret this issue of the doves to mean that we're not to resist any kind of hostility toward us. Uh, some believe we're not even allowed to defend ourselves from attack, uh, even if the attack is on our, our wife and our children. Uh, but I think that's saying a lot that Jesus did not say here. You know, Jesus, I think, was a, an excellent communicator. And if he wanted to tell us, do not defend yourself, uh, Aramaic is not a language that is short on vocabulary to do that. I think that he could have done that very, very well. Uh, but he never said that. There is much in Scripture that condemns re retaliation and revenge, uh, but nothing in the Scripture that says I can't protect myself from an attack. And as you guys come into the church every Sunday, uh, you notice that we have some security guys here. Okay, so because we believe uh, that you should not be attacked. Is that okay? Okay, good. Because we're not going to fire our security guys. So they're going to stay put. I think perhaps a talk on uh, biblical self-defense versus you know, retaliation and vengeance is uh, something it would be appropriate to talk about in the future as well. Be that as it may, we should avoid unnecessary trouble and we should not provoke it. I think that's the kind of the gist of what Jesus is saying. Be wise, be gentle. And uh, if you've seen people that preach the gospel, you've seen people that aren't too wise and they're not too gentle. And then you've seen other people that are. One's winsome, one pushes people away. He says, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. So that's very Jewish, right? being scourged in a synagogue. But then he says, you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So now we've incorporated uh, Gentiles into this whole persecution thing. So it's Jew, from the Jews, from the Gentiles. So Jesus is saying, even without provoking people, even though you've been wise and gentle, the wolves will still find you. They will still punish you. Uh, Paul uh, the law required, uh, well, the law forbids someone to be uh, whipped, scourged, uh, more than 40 times. If, if you were whipped 40 times, that's it. So what the Jews did is they took Paul and they whipped him 39 times and they started back again at one just so they could keep beating him. I think they did it three times. Is that what the text says? Beat him and beat him. That was from the Jews. So even without provoking, they'll find you. And Jesus says that, and I think there's it's some condition here, a contingency. If you've been wise, 
if you've been gentle in your proclamation of the gospel and you're punished for it, God will use it as a testimony. He will speak to those who are observing this whole mess. Now, if you doubt that, uh, you should read uh, some history books, one called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, Because what happened throughout church history, as it's proven, that when God's people preach the gospel with conviction mingled with humility, it's far more effective, first of all, than when it's done with bold arrogance. But oftentimes, it was during someone's martyrdom that people came to faith in Christ. They would hear their testimony, they would witness their faith and their courage, and then they would confess Christ. And there are multiple stories of people then joining the martyr in their death. God said I would use it, and he has, and he does. It's powerful. But I think it's conditioned based upon your disposition. You know, Peter says that if you you get beaten for not being humble and respectful, he says you deserve the beating. So remember that. So don't cry victim if you're obnoxious preaching the gospel and somebody smacks you, okay? But you got your reward, essentially. But if you're humble, you're being winsome and kind, and you get knocked down for it, then like Peter, then you can get up and click your heels and praise God that you were worthy to be abused for his namesake. Amen? The the other testimony from history that I believe is probably the most powerful is that after 300 years of of intermittent persecution in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was turned upside down. Masses of people turned to Christ. The culture was so altered that paganism and infanticide, cruelty, and slavery almost vanished within the empire without the church ever lifting a sword. God used the testimony, and he used it through persecution. It's powerful. His promise came to pass. Jesus says, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. I was going to get a lot further. This lousy clock. So again, a contingency I think is in here, being wise as servants, gentle as doves. When they're among wolves, they're unjustly incarcerated, brought before a tribunal. At that time, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will then use you. He will speak through you to your persecutors. How many guys, any of you guys heard of um, Pastor Mike McClure of Calvary Chapel San Jose? You should look it up. So during the pandemic, uh, Pastor Mike, um, he kept his church open. And uh, of course, it came to the attention of the authorities real fast. Uh, So much attention that by the county, he was fined $2.87 million. And on top of that, they threatened to take the church and his house. It's going to take everything. So very intimidating, don't you think? That's that's a lot of intimidation. It's government-sanctioned intimidation. At the last pastor conferences I was at, his father, uh, Pastor Don McClure, who I've learned so much from over the years uh, in expository preaching. He said that when, when his son was brought before the judge for almost an hour without a script in front of him, he shared the gospel to the judge, to the prosecutors, to all the people in the courtroom, and very kindly, humbly explained how he's not political. He's just a pastor. He's a shepherd. And explained why he remained open so that he could minister to people in their greatest time of need. And then afterwards, the prosecuting attorney came to Don McClure and told him how much she respected his son for sharing his testimony, for being humble. God used Mike, and he preached the gospel to to people. Otherwise, they would never hear the gospel. It was great. 
So keep praying for them if you would. Uh, they're still fighting the county. They've won one of their uh, other lawsuits and uh, now they're countersuing for the unprovoked um, just harassment. And uh, yeah, so you guys probably heard about, um, um, what's his name? Other guy in California, he won all of his cases. John MacArthur, yeah. How could I forget John's name? That rascal, so. All right, but Jesus says things will actually get worse than government-sanctioned problems. He says, now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. People say, this is impossible. I say, look what happened during the pandemic. Just over a vaccine, over a mask, people were just incriminated. And uh, imagine how the gospel could divide. He says, and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus is saying, because of the gospel, families will turn on each other, even to the point of turning them over to death. So Christians will become the, the world's object of hatred, want nothing more than to get rid of us if they can't silence us. And if they can't silence us, they will create means of, of disposing of us. You know, they're once again trying to silence believers to intimidate them. I think you probably have watched this. Uh, but for the first time, it has come to this far in the West. It never was here before. In Canada, pastors were arrested. Uh, who knows all that happened in Australia? In America, we've had some pro-life people that have been arrested without due process by the FBI. Uh, it's all sanctioned by the Department of Justice. Uh, it's crazy stuff. Uh, you know, as soon as the, the, those that hate Christianity gain the upper hand in a culture, and when they, when they uh, win over the Supreme Court, there will be government-sanctioned persecution again, just as it was in the Roman Empire and under the, the Roman Church in Europe, just as it is currently in China, Muslim-majority countries, just as the Scriptures promise. Jesus' words will not fall to the ground. Okay? But he says those who endure, that is, patiently suffer under these circumstances, he said they'll be saved. God will keep those who are exposed to these things. You know, I hope that I never have to go to those kinds of extremes with my faith, but I believe that if God has called me to suffer in that regard, he will give his grace to me to endure. And uh, I often read the martyrdoms of various people, uh, both in ancient history and modern history, just for encouragement. I'm inspired uh, by their, their faith. It's, it's beautiful. I have to stop right there. So I got teachers watching after your children and I, I want them to like me every Sunday. So if you would, please stand up. We'll finish with a worship song. I almost finished everything I was going to. Let's pray. Well, Father, the task of, of proclamation is, is no joke. You never gave a hint that it would just be the funnest thing in the world. But every time there's a commission, it seems that there's just great warning. And Lord, everything that you have said will come to pass has become a reality for the church from the first century until now. Lord, it's our heritage. And Lord, you have proven yourself faithful to your people when they encounter such circumstances. And so Lord, I really think that, that, that you have granted us this cushion in Western culture. That this is the time to be most assertive. Uh, where there's no, not many consequences to sharing. So Lord, grant us boldness. Fill us with your spirit. Give us strength. Help us to articulate the truth of the gospel with power and clarity. Lord, that we might win citizens to your kingdom. 
So Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.